Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the live weekend edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth here on Revolution.Radio every Friday evening, 7 to 9 p.m. Central, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, whatever time it is, wherever you are, it's time for Red Pill Truth here at Revolution.Radio, the finest of listener-sponsored networks. Tonight we're going to the past, the future, and then the present. We'll begin by looking down nostalgia lane a little bit at uh, old-fashioned, perhaps even obsolete, science fiction. Wait a minute, that's the future with Ron Jacobs. Ron is the author of Daydream Sunset, 60s Counterculture in the 70s, a wonderful nostalgic look back at the good old hippie days, the late hippie days. And then uh, we'll talk about his new article, some hazy cosmic jive about Science fiction, the trends in that world. And so that's our, uh, that's our past and our future. And then the big time news in the present is that earlier today, the U.S. Uh, circuit Court of Appeals, that's the second for the second circuit, heard oral arguments from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. This is a case arguing for the right of family members of 9-11 victims, among other plaintiffs, to sue, uh, or rather to, to seat a grand jury to investigate the still unsolved crimes of 9-11. So we'll learn about what happened in that courtroom in the second hour of this show with Mick Harrison of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and Richard Gage, who is also, rather Richard Gage AIA, I should say, who is still also with that group. So should be a very interesting and informative second hour. I've been on the road all day. I didn't even hear what happened in that courtroom, so it'll be news to me as well. All right, let's get going. In the first hour, uh, Ron Jacobs is a lively uh, chronicler of popular culture over the past several decades. Uh, he recently wrote a great piece on uh, how he, yeah, he really did serve uh, quite a lot of jail time just for possession of very small amounts of marijuana back in the day. And so that kind of dates us when we talk about things like that. Uh, and he's also written on what he prefers to call houselessness, not homelessness, houselessness. And uh, and then the science fiction article, I guess, will be our touchstone. So let's get to it. Hey, welcome, Ron Jacobs. How are you? Howdy. Good to have you back. Uh, yeah, likewise. Yeah, it's been about a year, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah about, about a year. Time time goes fast when you're having a good time doing uh, countercultural stuff. <laughs> Yeah, one one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we were going to talk about science fiction, but of course you write about so many things and they're all kind of related. There's a, you know, kind of evolution of popular culture theme running through a whole lot of your writings. And uh, you know, so so looking back at science fiction, which seems like a kind of an oxymoron, is in fact uh quite useful because there was so much good science fiction back in the past. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the golden age in the fifties and then the breakout of the really interesting writers in the, in the seventies. Uh, 
sixties and seventies, I should say. So anyway, maybe, maybe you could briefly, uh, you know, mention, uh, your experience as a librarian dealing with science fiction and sort of, you know, why you, uh, view science fiction as important. Yeah, um, I've been working in, I recently, I just retired actually two weeks ago from working in libraries. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. It's, it's a good feeling. Um, no more clock punching. Um, but yeah, figuratively speaking, but yeah, you know, um, working in libraries on and off, well, literally pretty much for the last close to 40 years, I've seen different, you know, you, you notice reading trends and some trends, like I say in the, my little piece on the hazy cosmic jive piece. Um, some trends stay like crime fiction is always popular. Romance is always popular. Um, spy fiction is always kind of popular, like the Tom Clancy military kind of stuff. Um, but science fiction comes and goes. And recently the, la- the last library I worked at um, was a public library where I live in, in Burlington, Vermont. And I've noticed a lot, a lot of people probably in their, late 20s into their 40s, checking out a lot of science fiction. And a lot of it's been new stuff, but at least now when they check it out, I can uh, converse with them and mention them, uh, some of the older authors uh, that I used to read, and possibly you probably did too, um, that uh, were big in the 60s and the 70s. And uh, some of them are almost impossible to find in libraries anymore because they are out of popularity for so long. Whereas other ones like uh, Octavia Butler, Ursula K. Le Guin, Philip K. Dick, there's, um, especially, um, Philip K. Dick and Octavia Butler, a lot of their stuff, um, is no longer science fiction. It's reality, but that makes it interesting in that, in its own way, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned in the article that science fiction uh, has a lot of uh, ways of bringing us news, but kind of the dystopian angle is the one that seems to be resonating with a lot of people these days. Uh, Octavia Butler and, and Philip K. Dick, and yet yeah, sometimes it does seem like we're living in a, a Philip K. Dick novel, maybe one that's even crazier than most of his. Uh, and I, I, I sort of wonder how you know people, these young people, are, are uh, relating to the whole history of science fiction now that there is such a long, sort of rich history, just like there is with the you know the, the post uh, baby boom generation popular music. Do you, when you've discussed this with uh, with these younger people reading science fiction, uh, what 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 do they have to say about why they're reading it? Well, a, a lot of the stuff, and I'm, I'm, a couple of the newer authors they read is a woman, a person from China. I don't know if they're a male, female, or whatever. Sin Chi Lu, and then the other person is N.K. Jemison, who I believe is a woman, and they talk more of. I mean, it is science fiction. I think N.K. Jemison stuff takes place out out in the universe in space somewhere. Uh, but I think what when I talk with them, a lot of what they like is that it's um, how would I put this. It experiments, it, 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 it writes about like alternative realities and alternative ways of seeing humans as opposed to just male, female, whatever. And also just kind of uh, on the dystopian side, I think it kind of, my daughter said to me, she's in her late twenties. She said the reason, like, and she was into the Hunger Games and the more young adult dystopian stuff. And she said people read it because then they realize two things. Their life isn't as bad, but it could get, it could get worse. Whatever that, whatever that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cheery. I'll, I'll yeah, try to remember yeah, that yeah, next time I, I yeah. uh, pick up an old Philip K. Dick novel or try to read 1984 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the, the, I think, the, you know, even the dystopian science fiction back in the 60s and the kind of late 60s, early 70s, I guess, I think I, I encountered 
uh, Philip K. Dick, right around the time that that Rolling Stone article on him came out in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, it, at that time, you know, it felt like the dystopian angle was not really sort of uh, a kind of inevitable thing. It wasn't like a warning that, yeah, this is totally where we absolutely must be headed. But it seemed, you know, there, it was more of a sort of satirical warning. And I remember thinking that, you know, the culture could get a lot better. Things could get a lot better. And and so even reading reading this really dark stuff from, from Philip K. Dick, uh, with plenty of dark humor, of course, I my kind of response to that at the time was to hope for a, a better future. And then that attitude seemed to sort of fade with the cyberpunk stuff. You know, reading reading uh, that kind of stuff uh, actually f- felt much more sort of imprisoning, gloomy, and without that kind of impetus to sort of uh, spark the imagination about how the world could be better. And so do you, do you think that – and the young people today, it seems to me, are less uh, – they, they seem like less engaged with – the notion that things could be radically different and better than they are. Uh, it, does it, does it seem that way to you? Yeah. Um, let me talk about that first part. I too, when I was reading Philip K. Dick and even, um, George Orwell and, and Alice Huxley's Brave New World, I kind of thought like, well, these are warnings, not predictions. Um, and it's interesting how a lot of them, I mean, so, well, 1984 is still relatively extreme. The, the stuff in um, Brave New World and a lot of the Philip K. Dick stuff, they turned out to be predictions almost, you know, like um, just the way the surveillance state and then with the way they use um, pharmaceuticals to keep everybody happy or whatever they, they use them for and so on. Um, and I, it's a, that's a good question regarding young people nowadays because I do I do believe they're more realistic about the future just because – the present has been fairly crazy. I mean, ours was crazy, but a lot of what we lived in the 60s and the 70s, a lot of the stuff was like the Vietnam War, racism, stuff like that. Those were things that, you know, could be controlled because they were human things. And now we're living in a place where, you know, pandemics, all sorts of kind of crazy stuff that we really don't have any control over. So I wonder how that does affect um, th- how they read the science fiction. That's a good question. I, re- you know, and I've, I've never really asked anybody that specifically. So next time I have a conversation, I probably will because that's a, that's a interesting pondering. You know, I think you're onto something with that distinction between things that we can have control over, uh, or, you know, imagining that we, could have some kind of human control over versus a kind of feeling that there, there are these things that we can't control. And of course that's very basic to psychology. People who feel like they've, they don't have control over their circumstances, you know, tend to be in much worse shape than those who can hope for some possibility of improving their circumstances. And Seligman's experiments with uh, rats, I think it was, uh, mm-hmm. dogs actually, uh, right, where he got turned them into sort of whimpering, hopeless, depressive right. cases, right, uh, by learned helplessness. Nothing they did could improve the situation. And, and I think we're almost in a cultural moment a little bit like that in some ways. But I wonder if that isn't more the, about the triumph of propaganda and, and the imposition of a 
uh, a worldview from above that, you know, they, in other words, they've conditioned us to have learned helplessness. It isn't that we couldn't change things. It isn't that these problems around us are actually not the result of human agency. For example, uh, I'm quite convinced, and I think you would be too if I, if you read a couple of pieces I sent you, that COVID was uh, basically either, you know, unintended or perhaps intended blowback from a U.S. bio attack on China and Iran. There's pretty strong evidence that that's the case. And of course, the U.S. has been attacking all kinds of countries with biological weapons since the Korean War, uh, including attacking China and taking out most of their meat supply in the two years preceding the COVID pandemic. So just as in the 60s, theoretically, we could dream of taking the nuclear weapons out of the hands of the Dr. Strangelove's Today, theoretically, we ought to be able to dream about taking the biological weapons out of the hands of the mad Dr. Fauci's and the uh, Trump administration neocons who probably gave us COVID. But the propaganda has triumphed in a certain sense by sort of wiping out the consciousness of, of reality. Like most people now, I think, are living in a propaganda Hollywood movie or a Matrix kind of situation. Uh, and, and it's ironic because today it's actually easier to learn the truth. Read Ron Unz's ebook on COVID and you, you'll learn where it came from. But most people haven't. In the 60s, you know, people somehow with their underground newspapers and such managed to get a better understanding of reality. So I, I think that maybe the reason that we're in the state of learned helplessness isn't that the problems are any different. I think it's that for some reason, too many people have succumbed to propaganda. Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I was, I'm reading a book right now about postmodernism and it brings up some of those points about, um, where they talk about how it's not like a totalitarian government from above. It's everybody's just decided to hook in and go along with the dominant paradigm. Um, and even sub- trying to subvert the dominant paradigm, the way people do it, whether they're actually out there in the streets raising hell and stuff, but the re- way most people do it is on their cell phones. So really that's just perpetuating that same, you know, the, 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 uh, the combination of the sense of helplessness. And at the same time, people who are upset about it, the most they do is they send, you know, I mean, I find myself doing that. I, I write my scribes, you know, or something like that, or I, I go on Facebook and, harass somebody who's who I'm disagreeing with or whatever, you know, get in an argument with someone on Facebook and it doesn't really resolve anything and it doesn't really change anything. And it does at the same time maintain that idea that we can only do so much because we're helpless in the face of this, this incredible powers that we can't even see and so on. And some of that's true. There are powers we can't see, but at the same time, like you say, I mean, you point out, the stuff about the um, about COVID and so on. And my take on COVID is I don't know. And I'm there's if you can't prove to me that it's not true, then I'm going to accept that it might be true. And, you know, and on my other side is kind of like, well, it would be interesting to know how it started. I'm more interested in trying to figure out how to stop it. So, you know, it's kind of but but at the same point, I think that all brings it home. The COVID issue really brings it home. That point that you're talking about of uh, a sense of helplessness that, people have assimilated into themselves um, and it's coming out of the media saturation that we get that that is all around us. 
Right. And, and, it, and I, I agree with you that it's more important, you know, to find a way to end COVID than just to, you know, to personally discover who started it. But maybe by uh, getting the word out about who started it and building some kind of momentum, mm-hmm. changing things, we might be able to prevent the next one, which could be a lot worse. You know, a lot. Of Absolutely. Things, yeah. It's like the 9-11 truth thing. And I'm not one way or the other on that either. But if we found out really what was if, we, if it ever really found out what was behind it, that would change the way. You know, it wouldn't tear down the government, but it would definitely change the way people think about things. Indeed. And then there's the anthrax angle of 9-11 as well, which ties very directly into COVID. Some of the same people appear to have been involved involved in that process. Exactly. And in that research. Yep. Yeah. 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 Isn't it crazy that the, you know, the official position of the U.S. government admits that uh, that the anthrax was mailed, you know, from, you know, from U.S. germ warfare scientists or they named the one. They blamed the one guy in particular, right. uh, Bruce Evans. But actually, uh, you know, whatever. It's originally those letters came with the return address uh, scrawl "Death to America, Death to Israel, Allah is great." And now the U.S. government tells us that no, that was somebody in the germ warfare community here in the United States that made that in a lab here in the United States and mailed it to Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy just in time to terrorize them into st- dropping their opposition to the Patriot Act. And, uh, okay. And so what, what's the upshot of this? Did we really get a real investigation of this? No. Did we, uh, you know, did, did, did we get the Patriot Act repealed and all of the, the people who were trying to push it through prosecuted? No. Instead, we, uh, increased the germ warfare budget by about 800% in just a couple of years. And I think one of the results of that very likely is, is COVID. So, uh, this, this business of, of, you know, looking, uh, ahead to trying to stop the problems. I, I think we need to think bigger than, than just the, the disease itself. But, um, you know, and, and, and again, this, you know, a lot of people listening to this would say, wow, you know, you're really pretty, you know, living in a dystopian world. Uh, I don't want to think my world is like that, but it, I think that's reality these days. Oh, and I think it's part, absolutely part of reality. You know, every, when you, you talking about the anthrax thing and everything, when I was a kid, going back to science fiction, when I was probably like in, I don't know, sixth grade or seventh grade, junior high probably, um, there was a book that was pretty big. I think it was turned into a movie actually called The Satan Bug. And it was about uh, disbursement of, you know, an accidental disbursement of chemical or biological warfare and it swept through the world. And I don't remember how it turned out because that was, you know, that was a while ago that I read it. But I keep on that, that book title has been playing in my brain more recently as all these theories come up and all these different possibilities arise regarding that, re- regarding the, um, the whole thing with COVID and its origins, et cetera. So and that just, kind of yeah, germ warfare science fiction is based on uh, the, you know the smart people who write it, uh, right. research it a little bit, and they discover that a lot of the experts in you know in, in military strategy and things like that, uh, and and the history of weapons development are convinced that it's inevitable that you know we're heading into an era of pervasive uh, bio war. And you know, that, that Nixon, of all people, tried to stop it. And yeah. he, got, he got that treaty pushed through. But the trouble, you know, the treaty prohibits the development of offensive weapons, but it doesn't prohibit, quote unquote, defensive research. And so what happened was the military portion of it largely got shut down. But then they sent it all over into like CDC. So I mean, Fauci's CDC, Pat Richoff, as RFK Jr.'s book uh, explains. And speaking of which, by the way, have you read RFK Jr.'s book? 
No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, highly, re- highly recommend it. Uh, and, and there's a reason why the establishment doesn't want you to read it. Oh, I figured as much. Yeah, I figured there's a reason why he's being attacked quite pretty much across the board. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, this is, this is all sort of looking, bringing us to, to think about the, you know, popular culture evolving since the sixties, the, the Kennedy assassinations, plural, uh, the, the sense of, of hope among the uh, younger people in the sixties and seventies and to whatever extent that may be evaporating now. And, and then how that gets reflected in popular culture, like, uh, like, like science fiction. And, yeah, I, I wonder if today it kind of feels like COVID has been almost like a, one of these germ warfare science fiction scenarios, doesn't it? Oh, it, it could definitely play out as one. And that's, you know, and if someone had written a novel of it before, and, and instead of us actually experiencing it, people would say it was a damn good novel and believable. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, uh, as, as the culture has evolved through, you know, the, from, from that, uh, you know, that sixties, period uh of you know some good dystopian stuff that some of it unfortunately has come true uh to i think a general a bleaker outlook as i i would argue you know reflected in in the cyberpunk school yeah uh, and, and in some ways though uh some of the hopes of the 60s seem to have arrived and and one of them is that marijuana is largely no longer something that you're going to spend a whole lot of time in, in prison or jail for. And you just wrote a piece about uh, some some of your younger friends being astonished that you actually served, I don't know, yeah. 50 plus days total or something like that. For yeah, something like that. It was like 30 some days or something. Yeah. Um, the, the whole whole thing came up. Uh, I was talking to some when I work, was working at the library. I was talking to some young guy, a uh, young Iraq Iraq vet or something, and he's living on the streets right now. And we got to talking because he's you know doing some self medication, and we got to talking about about it and so on. And he was asking and he was t- talking about the cops, and he he was saying, "Have you ever been arrested?" I said, "I did." You know, I told him, "Yeah, I went to jail a few different times for protest and for for marijuana." He goes, "You went to jail for marijuana?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, it's." Pretty much was pretty illegal. And he was like, Oh, you must have had a ton. I said, No, I had like two fingers, you know, like a half an ounce or something, you know. So, but yeah, that's an, that's a positive thing that marijuana has become legal. It's interesting how it plays out in each state. Like California, I see they're trying to bust the illegal growers still out here in, in Vermont. Um, they still don't sell it commercially. They sell it through dispensaries if you have a, a card, but people can grow it. And that's mostly what people are doing is just growing their own. Um, but that's, that's, in other states, it's much more controlled in terms of who's going to sell it and where it's going to be sold and anything else, depending on how hard they want to crash, come down on it. And once again, I see that kind of like uh, the liquor laws, how it was basically to, to get taxes for the state. Right. And as I recall, there was uh, a sort of a then future of legal marijuana in at least a couple of Philip K. Dix novels. I remember them yes. you know, were these brand names. You know, Acapulco Gold was a yes. big corporate brand name. And so it was, it was part of his dystopian future that corporate capitalism had taken over the marijuana industry like it was taking over everything else. And this was a, a nightmare. And in some, to a certain extent, that seems to be uh, maybe not coming true as, as thoroughly as he imagined. But uh, we're still in that corporate capitalist dystopian nightmare. And, and the marijuana world is, is not like the, you know, the daydream of a, a liberated world that 
a lot of people in the 60s were dreaming about. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, and it depends, like I was referring to, it depends on the state. Like Vermont, Washington, D.C., a couple other places, they only legalize growing and possession. You still can't sell it legally, um, and they haven't set up the retail side of it. Places like Maryland are talking about legalizing it, and the legislature wants to get on top of it because they want to create a situation where it'll be sold through state, the similar situation like state liquor stores and um but and at the same time it would only only certain companies would be able to produce it and the the story is among you know among the people who are really into it down in Maryland um into this process is that they're trying to farm it all out to Philip Morris and and the the, the tobacco companies which goes contrary to the whole idea of the liberated marijuana thing and so on you know, like that you were talking about so it'll be interesting to see. And since it is a state thing, each state has, has its own way of doing it. And I think the ultimate dream will be or the ultimate dream of the legislators is and the corporations is that they'll control it all. And it will be like how in a lot of states it was illegal to brew your own beer up in, until like 15 years ago because it went because the breweries had made sure that got into the law after prohibition was lifted. Right. So that is getting a little bit dystopian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I've, I've been driving through the country and it's a little confusing. Uh, in, I forget which state it was. I, I went through the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles and there are billboards advertising. Uh, I think it, what was it like, you know, got weed? I think it is, you know, call 1-800-GOT-WEED or something to get the lawyers to defend you. Um, uh, and so there must still be some busts going on. I think maybe people are confused. They come out of Colorado where yeah. there are marijuana dispensaries everywhere. It's all totally commercialized. And then they maybe they're coming through Oklahoma or Texas. I don't know. Texas, I think maybe it's getting legal now, but maybe it's Oklahoma where they're busting everybody. Uh, but, you know, I guess people should probably try to stay pretty uh, sober so they can keep track of which states. Which state they're in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, pretty much most of the East Coast now is it's all legal except in one or two states, um, at least north of um, Pennsylvania. And then the West Coast is is all legal. But, yeah, in the Midwest, it, dep- it really does depend on the state. And down there in the, in the South, same thing. Most of the South, it's still illegal, but it's been decriminalized everywhere. And most of them, I think, have medicinal. But, uh yeah, it's still like if you cross state lines, they can arrest you. The, um, the feds can arrest you is because it's still against federal law, which is why the one of the campaign things of uh, some of the candidates on both the right and the left um, in the last the last um, presidential campaign was to take it off the federal Schedule One list and basically make it legal across. So you know, this- as this is happening, is, is it becoming more like Soma in Huxley's Brave New World? Becoming- I always, put, yeah, I always wonder that myself. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to not to think that because it does create a, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing because the thing with marijuana, I mean, a lot of people are a lot better off smoking marijuana or, or eating it or however they take, ingest it than they are drinking alcohol or, or doing like methamphetamine and so on. But yeah, it is an interesting thing. Are they, is the state, pushing this because it keeps people mellow and they're less likely to um, get out in the streets as they realize they're, you know, what's their, the economy's being stripped and, and, you know, their neighborhood's going crashing and everything. Uh, and their, their job is nothing and so on and so forth. And the police are cracking down more and the health, public health is being used to impose like state 
you know, state police state measures and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it, it does make you wonder for sure. Right. You know, another thing that made me wonder was a while back, I saw that one of some of these, you know, there are these academicians who are now studying psychedelic drugs and especially in terms of their potential for therapy and things like that. And one of them was arguing that uh, they needed to be dosing. I, I can't remember if he was proposing sort of this involuntary dosing, but it almost came across that way of the uh, sort of quote unquote COVID deniers or the, you know, the, the COVID uh, uh, resistors, right? The people who, who don't want to wear the mask. And so his, <laughs> he was saying, well, these people, these are like Trump supporting uh, COVID mask hating uh, crazies who are giving us all COVID. And so to enlighten them, what we need to do is, is have psychedelic therapy with them. We need to have them eat magic mushrooms. So then they will develop the empathy to care about the other people enough to wear their totally useless cloth masks, you know, and probably go out and get vaccinated or whatever. So that struck me as another kind of odd uh, thing I never would have imagined before that something like mushrooms would be seen as a tool of therapy to induce people to go along with a kind yeah. of a, a cultural group bubble that's being uh, pushed by the authorities. Um, yeah. And the CIA tried that. It wasn't very successful. With the <laughs> right. Yeah, so I yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, to me, that's interesting. Um, and I can, you know, anybody who's done any of those things knows for sure that you they're unpredictable and that, they're they're pretty much use, useless for that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that someone would still think, you know, that it's the drug and not not the society that would make somebody change their mind. I mean, I'm I'm not convinced that drugs do anything other than, change, you know, levitate you or calm you down or whatever. And you know, but they're not they're they're not as liberatory as we thought they were 50 years ago. Let's say, yeah, so right. Yeah, I think 50 years ago, the, the side, the liberatory side of the whole counterculture involved people waking up to the fact that things could be a whole lot different than they are at every level, including the individual level. You know, people can be much happier. Uh, they, they can change really, you know, it, it is possible people can change. And, and the reality that we live in is, you know, as, as Robert Anton Wilson said, it's, it's silly putty. It can be all, you know, all kinds of things. And so since reality is so plastic, and since, you know, we can kind of change or, you know, inhabit the world that we want to to a certain extent. And collectively, we theoretically could live in a much better world that we have all, all, all these kinds of potentials. But I think drugs maybe foster the illusion that whatever change you get is coming from some chemical. Uh, and that actually might be kind of deceptive. It might actually be uh, conditioning people in the wrong direction you know, to associate the plasticity of reality with these kinds of, you know, uh, pharmacological kind of magic button you push and then it does something uh, to your mind. I, and I've seen this process with the you know, people I've known who've used various kinds of drugs that they often kind of they, they end up forgetting uh, just how uh, how free and plastic reality is because they fall into some rut with whatever their chosen drug is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the drugs, don't, don't, they don't change the reality. They just make it look different for a little while, I guess. Right. And so if you want, you want to think about changing reality, maybe a certain amount of reading is helpful. Science fiction uh, certainly can do that. You know, I've known people who change their reality based on science fiction. I guess my life was heavily influenced by Kurt Vonnegut and Philip K. Dick. I have a friend who came to Islam because the Dune books 
Uh, oh, somehow. yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Inspired yeah. that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how that works. Well, it's based on some of the Sufi stuff, I believe. Like some some of the philosophy in there. I was reading this the other day. I'm mean, like, I think it's based on some of the Sufi um, teachings and so on um, of of Islam. You know, and that's the more liberal mystic side of Islam. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I actually did my dissertation on Sufism in Morocco. So. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah. Did you go to Morocco? Uh, did I go there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, sp- I spent uh, I spent that's a year there doing uh, Fulbright wow. research for that dissertation. Oh, that's pretty cool. Wow. And that's how I got to know my, my friend who uh, <laughs> converted to Islam through Dune. Uh, uh, I guess most science fiction doesn't have that kind of straightforward, powerful effect on people. Yeah, not, yeah, not usually. Yeah. Huh. It, it, it's an important genre. And you know, the Journal of Science Fiction Studies is one of the most interesting sort of literary journals from that I remember back when I was in, in literary graduate school. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of folks who are thinking critically about society, including from the left wing perspective that we get at Counterpunch and so on, uh, are are really into science fiction. I think in in part because it does allow them to to think about these these different kinds of uh, futures and the possibility of changing them. Yeah, uh, there's a while we're talking science fiction, there is a book I I, th- I reviewed a few years ago. Um, it was called star something anyhow it was about rock music and science fiction the influence of the cross-pollination that occurred there like in the late 60s through the 70s up into the early 80s and uh it was, it was quite a clever book um it, it you know obviously it mentions david bowie it's, the whole book starts off with david bowie and a friend of his going to a theater in london and they had taken some they had eaten some marijuana tincture or something and they went there to watch 2001 space odyssey and then it just takes off from there. And he, he, the author does a good job of, um, bringing in disparate types of rock music, um, from Paul Kantner and Grace Slick and that whole collection, um, of the Jefferson Airplane guys who did Blows Against the Empire, which was one of, the, which actually won the Hugo Award for science fiction that year. Um, and then he talk, he'll talk about Hawkwind, the British band, which, all, which was all about basically a lot of their, Records were space operas that were based on dip books by different science fiction authors. Uh, a lot of Michael Moorcock, because Michael Moorcock had um, he he actually was good friends with a lot of the, the guys in that band, inclu- including Lemmy, when Lemmy was with them. And uh, then he also talks about uh, uh, Elton John's song "Rocket Man." He talked. Then he talks about Parliament, part of Parliament Funkadelic and the mothership. So it's an interesting book that kind of talks about the influence and the way. It was a science fiction was actually a fundamental part of the um, counterculture in that period of of cultural history. That's right. I don't think there's anything really comparable to that now, is there? I mean, maybe the Matrix movies have had a big. They have a big influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But other than that, I think the Hunger Games among a certain set for dystopian fiction, um, and that was definitely a post-apocalyptic kind of fiction, and, and you know. Uh, and it was, it was, it was, the movies were well done. The books were okay. The books were written for, uh, the junior high, high school audience, you know, but, um, I would say probably those and that's, yeah. And who knows, maybe Dune will have something. Um, the other one might be Blade Runner. Right. Right. Yeah. That was based on Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. And, and there must, there's been like three versions of that, I believe, or two or three sequels or something. I've only saw the first one and the director's cut, but. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a, that's a that's a great movie and a somewhat different, but also also a great book. That that, that was a, a very interesting dystopian book, as I recall. And, you know what what I I recall from the book more than the movie was the sort of bleakness of a world where yeah. living creatures are so rare that people acquire robotic uh, animals like robotic sheep as status symbols to park on the rooftop of their condominium apartments yeah. to impress their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And part yeah. of that reminded me that the, the whole Star Trek, because you can't miss Star Trek. They that I, I I still think Star Trek was part of the reason for um, a huge, a greater interest in science fiction after the Star Trek ran for whatever that was, two years or something like that. And then it just kept on coming back. And you know, as everybody who knows the Star Trek story, it actually was a lot more popular when it was no longer. A running series. It was a lot more popular in reruns, and then in all the various recreations of it, Star Trek, Star Trek Next Generation, etc., etc., etc. But every time I would watch a Star Trek, Star Trek Next Generation show where they had the Borg, I couldn't. I always thought of that, the Blade Runner movie, because of the the mix of the android with with the human humanoid and all that stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. So, in, in, you know, now it seems like the I, I haven't really been following the either the, the science fiction books or movies uh, lately, just because maybe partly because it seems like we're living in such a, uh, a bad science fiction movie already. We don't really need any more. Yeah. Yeah. Do uh, you think of anything in the last couple of years? That's- I don't really I don't really go to the movies much. So I really can't think of. St- I mean, I know there's been some TV series on some of the. Uh, the streaming, you know, on like Netflix and so on. Um, but I couldn't tell you the name of them. a lot of them from what I can understand. My daughter was my, one, my daughter. One of her friends was telling me about one of them. I can't remember the title. And he said it was more. He said it reminded him of like old science fiction um, from like 50s or 60s when it was all about the military domination of another planet. And it was kind of like he said he kind of saw it as a metaphor for. War, kind of like a lot of that early science fiction in the 50s and the 60s, which was, which was pretty straight laced, male, male oriented and so on, was an allegory or a metaphor for the Cold War. Um, so who, who knows? Maybe he's right on that. Maybe he's not. I mean, but it was an interesting way to think of it. And an inter- for to me, it kind of was like, well, that explains why those kind of movies might be coming out again or those kind of TV series. Um, other than that, like I said, the main, those, the, those, the main authors I've noticed that have been popular were the three, a couple of the old ones. Um, and then th- those two or three that I mentioned. And so, and I, I, I don't read their stuff that much because I read, I kind of, when I want to take it easy from reading nonfiction, I usually read crime fiction or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten into 19th century novels, which in some ways almost oh, the wow. opposite of science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. They're, they're wordy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. I, I take a few. You know, I'm, I'm actually going re, going back and uh, rereading Les Misérables right now. Oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah, it's almost up there with War and Peace length, but you know, yeah, it's good stuff to sort of read at night uh, as you wind down before you go to bed. Uh, but you know, getting back to the, the science fiction stuff, how about this weird sort of move towards the government telling us that UFOs and aliens and such are real? You know, over the past couple of years, the New York Times has been publishing articles uh, about these whistleblowers and, and investigators who essentially are telling us that the kind of stuff that 
uh, Greer, Stephen Greer, uh, exposed back in 2001 with the Disclosure Project, you know, that lineup of dozens and dozens of ex-military people, some of them pretty high level, all speaking out about having witnessed everything from uh, flying saucers buzzing their nuclear installations and shutting off the nukes to, you know, cap shooting down and capturing uh, aliens, uh, pieces of their saucers and all of this sort of thing. Um, so the, the mainstream media now seems to be inching in that direction, maybe not even inching. They're practically they've essentially came out and told us that uh, this is all real. Uh, now, whether that means it really is, I don't know. I don't believe anything they say anymore. <laughs> uh, that, that's uh, something that one would think would make a bigger impact on the culture and maybe be reflected in, in science fiction popular culture as well. But so far, it's kind of crickets. It's, it's tumbleweed. It's like, okay, they just told us that all of this stuff is true uh, and, and the whole world should be turned upside down, and yet um, hardly anybody is even talking about it. Yeah, I wonder how much of that's related to the over how much over the last like whatever 20, 30 years. I think of like the X Files and TV shows like that and movies where it's created it's created an acceptance of that that people might be just saying, oh well, it's about time the government kind of like. That's a good point. Acknowledge, acknowledge what we've been thinking and that other people have been thinking too. Just like if, if the government actually like released all of the Kennedy, all the papers regarding the, the Kennedy assassination and it said, yeah, it was a conspiracy. I mean, I'm not going to say who's, who was consp- conspiring or anything, but people would be like, well, duh, you know, most of us kind of thought that for the longest time, but you had the proof and so on. So yeah, it's interesting, but I do wonder what the intent, if there is one. Um, of of the government to release this kind of stuff other than maybe you know you could get kind of far out there i guess and say well maybe somebody some of them have been in contact with you know creatures from another planet or they're already here and so they want to get people ready for when that actually happens i don't i mean that's kind of far-fetched but we are talking about science fiction so yeah <laughs> <laughs> right yeah that's, that's, what, that's what science fiction does yeah yeah it's a it's another word for it i know and that and the book that got me to write that piece it was a book put out it was like a compendium it's there, there were pretty it was put out by pm press like last last fall i believe and they, it was the third in a series that they do and basically they're kind of like books that used to be in the reference section in your library that kind of were like introductions to this genre or introductions to 18th century century English literature or the the poetry of so-and-so and stuff, you know, and what they are is the first one that PM did was on fifties pulp fiction, like girl gangs, bikers, greasers, that kind of stuff. The next one was on the new left, the radical new left in the counterculture in 1960s and 1970s paperback fiction. And so this most recent one is on science fiction from the from the 50s into the early 80s and uh i forgot my train of thought was but anyhow the book itself uh it's it's quite a uh it's 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 a lot of fun to look at if if you like science fiction because they have so many covers of all those old of all the old paperbacks and everything it's kind of like you're standing in a um in a newsstand back when they still had newsstands and you could kind of read as much of the book as you could until they told you, you either had to buy it or leave uh, kind of thing. Um, and so in there, the, the other part of it is that it has a lot of uh, it has commentary from different writers about 
the meaning of science fiction and in the culture. And a lot of it's kind of stuff that we're kind of speculating about here. And in there, they say, this is what I was going to get back to that science fiction. Now there's a debate whether to call it speculative fiction or science fiction. But the thing with speculative fiction is it can also go back in time, you know, like a, who's that guy? Um, well, I think I think uh, William Gibson has done somewhere. He went back in time, and yeah, uh, yeah, like the steampunk stuff. Yeah. yeah, the steampunk stuff. Yeah, and I'm not sure about Neil Stevenson because I've really never read any of his stuff. Another guy that I really like, and his stuff is kind of like a mix between sci-fi and just other alien fantasy. Is uh oh jeez, is um China China um Maville. I don't know if you ever read anything by him. And he, he just creates these other worlds, uh, that are, he's a Brit, he's a British writer, uh, and he's created, he's created these other worlds where they're very believable though. And it's kind of a mix of like steampunk, science fiction, and just alien fantasy stuff. That sounds pretty cool. Well, you know, so getting back to something you, you said earlier, uh, about how, you know, if they told us that yeah, we're going to release all the JFK papers, and yeah, it was a conspiracy. And then, yeah, we're going to release all the UFO papers, and yeah, they're real. Must be what's going on. Uh, this relates, and you said that people would kind of just accept it, and uh, especially if, if everybody's smoking marijuana like Soma. So like, hey, man, of course. <laughs> oh, cool, man. <laughs> we all knew that. Man. But, but seriously, that, that actually, uh, I think there's a certain you know kind of uh, repression going on with that. Uh, and maybe even a little bit of element of learned helplessness in that what seems to be happening in some of these areas is that the line between fiction and nonfiction is getting blurred and to the point that people aren't even sure if they care that much, which it is. And so, you know, I, I studied this around 9-11. The very first reaction that so many people had to 9-11 was, wait a minute, is this real or is this a disaster movie? It looks just like a disaster yeah. movie. And I think that that kind of cognitive distance between not knowing whether it's it's real or fiction it looks so Hollywoodish that can lead people to be helpless. And likewise, if your attitude about, say, JFK or 9-11 or what have you is, well, we'll never really know. And that was my attitude about 9-11 for the first couple of years. Uh, I think that you are less likely to actually take uh, action. Uh, and, you know, do the right thing, just to, yeah, yeah. You know, try to try to bust these, <laughs> these yeah. evil sons and bitches that did it. So, so I, I, that's why I jumped, you know, once I figured this out, maybe circa 2004, I jumped into the, yeah, 9-11 was inside job thing, rather than saying, oh, we're just asking questions and we need to investigate and so on and so forth. You know, that perspective just lets people off the hook. They don't have to take action. See, we take action when we know when we think we know what's going on. You know, to a moral certainty, we say, yeah, this is what's going on. Okay, we're going to deal with it. And as long as you can pretend that you don't really know what's going on, maybe it's all just fiction. Maybe it's just conspiracy theory. You don't do anything. So I, I think the bad guys have figured this out, and I think that they're deliberately confusing us uh, about what's real and what's not. I think... I, I think that's a, a, a really fair point. Um, it, like I said, that actually takes me back to this book, uh, this whole concept, the whole postmodernist thing where there's nothing real and everything is like the shadow being cast on the wall, but no one's paying attention to what's cast in the shadow kind of thing. And so, and, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people just don't know what's real, what isn't real. It's kind of like, um, we're all in a virtual reality game and, 
we don't know when the game's turned off if or if it's ever turned off. And I think that's how a lot of people do approach what what happens in their world, especially in the in the bigger world that they they have no control over. And then sometimes when they wake up or when they start doing some reading or start asking questions, it's such a shock to them that their reaction is either the the reaction could just be off the wall or it could just create a even greater sense of helplessness. Yeah, right. So it's it it's really a kind of a, a paradox. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. But so uh oh, where where was I going with that? <laughs> um as as far as is is kind of, you know, get, getting a grip with some moral certainty on what's going on and in order to change things, it appears to me that, you know, sometimes that, you know, that old Yates line about the best lack all conviction and the, you know, the, the worst are full of passion and intensity is, is right because it's the people who kind of prematurely jump to the interpretation of what they think is going on. Often, you know, some kind of, you know, myth, a public myth is broadcast to them that they latch onto. The Trump followers, I think, make this mistake. And there are some smart people, of course, that oh, yeah. have seen positive sides to Trump, but overall, it seems to me that the, uh, that is a good example of, of people who prematurely embrace certainty about various things. And maybe they're right about some and not right about others, but they get all fired up and it's not necessarily uh, going to change the world in a good way. Uh, and uh, whereas those who are more skeptical, um, aren't passionate enough to actually do something about the truth that they actually see. And so it leaves, yeah, it, and it's, so ultimately I suppose if that went to its natural end, it would leave the world in the hands of those who don't have all the facts but have enough facts so that they can jump that, and, and they want to do something about it while, while the rest keep on questioning or just turn it off. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's what the military people do, of course, when, when you're fighting a war. I guess you know, I've never done that, but I can imagine what it would be like. You would have to make quick assessments yeah. and decide what you thought was going on and act accordingly, uh, very you know quickly and intensively. And uh, you know maybe we all should be a little bit more that way. Yeah, and I think it. it, it yeah, it's a, I guess it's a fine balance because you got to have your information, but you also have to be able to react to um, if, if you're put in a situation, especially like in a military situation, where you have to be able to react. To, uh, to save yourself and the people that quote unquote are on your side, you know. So, yeah, that's interesting because if you wait too long to get the information, that could be the end of the end of it for you. So yeah, yeah, you're you're in the position of Prince Hamlet, you know, dealing yeah. with rallying yeah. as yeah. things go from bad yeah. to and that's what happened after the JFK assassination, in my opinion. Frankly, I don't understand how anybody who saw the live broadcast or the tapes of the live broadcast of, of Jack Rubenstein, a known mob hitman, uh, walking through a parting Red Sea of Dallas police officers, miraculously opening up for him to walk through and shoot the alleged commie loan assassin dead. How could you know about that and not know with a moral certainty yeah, yeah. that this was a coup and try to do something about it? Right, because every time you watch that, you're just kind of, you know, I I've, I can re- think of, like, watching it with nieces and nephews, and, and they'll be like, wow. How come they let them through? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. People have been asking that question ever since it happened. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's yeah. so long. And they didn't have the context that you and I did, you know, because 
it's ancient history to them, but but still they're like, how come they let them through? And I said, yeah, that's what happened, you know. So it's an interesting, right. yeah. That's a good question for the whole country. Like, you know, why did we let let them, you know, the coup perpetrators, why did we let them through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was he doing there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cra- crazy times we're living in. And, uh, well, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. And so I think my listeners might be interested to hear why you think that the word homelessness should be replaced by the neologism houselessness. Well, I think it's because, I mean, people, I, I, I'm kind of like home is where the heart is kind of guy. I know it's kind of cheesy, but, um, like, I believe that home is the people. And if you are, have animals, the people and the animals that are closest to you and that you, you create a, a living environment with. Whereas being with that, and it doesn't necessarily entail, require a home, um, or a, a structure, um, as opposed to houselessness means you, you don't have a structure to live in. And so that's why I, I, I say that because homelessness kind of creates a, in our, in, in our, and I think in my understanding and probably in a, a more societal understanding of the word, it creates this idea that it's hard, it's almost impossible to solve when in reality, most of these people, all they need is a house. And then we can take care of the rest of the business once they get settled into with a roof over the head. So I, I don't know if that explains it well enough, but. I, I, I think it's one is more of a, a uh, pretty straight up term. Houselessness means they don't have a house. Homelessness has a different connotation to, to I think most people, you know, because home, you know, a house is not a home that all those kind of little cliches that we've been brought up with. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I think I have maybe heard uh, people use the expression "the unhoused." Have you? Have you yeah, heard that? that's that's another one. I think that's actually one that a lot of housing advocates um, or advocates for people who are who are ho- homeless, houseless, whatever. I think that's one that there a lot of them are using now is the unhoused. Mm-hmm. And so, you you think this is a solvable problem? You know, getting enough houses fixes the problem. I think that's the first step is to get people into shelters, get a roof over their head, um, get them cleaned up. Um, how, or And, you know, the, like in Vermont, they actually have a fairly decent program. They've been with some of the COVID money. I know we're running out of time, but with some of the COVID money, they've been um, buying up old strip motels, you know, like Norman Bates kind of motels and uh, converting them into little kitchenettes and then, giving them to people and basically people if they have substance abuse issues they have to continue you know they have to start a program that involves like NA or AA or whatever and they kind of have to stay in the program but they get several chances before they lose their home their place of stay and then if it's people with men who are have mental health issues they basically just have to uh make their appointments and if they're on meds take their you know take their meds. Not that I necessarily think meds are always the best thing, but they do have their, their role for some people. Um, so it's, it's, I, but I think that's a good beginning to give people a, a, a roof over their heads so they could take a shower so they can sleep in a bed. So they don't have to worry about somebody attacking them in the middle of the night, whether it's the police, whether it's another person, whether it's a, you know, some low rent, whether it's a rapist, whatever, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, well, that, that's definitely one of the ways the world could be improved uh, from the ground up, maybe even, even in your own neighborhood or community, folks. All right. Well, thank you so much. Ron Jacobs, author of Thank Dating You. Sunset. Uh, good to hear you. Uh, very good recent work. Keep up the great work. Uh, God bless and have a great uh, time after your retirement. Yeah, thanks a lot. You too. Take care. <laughs> yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Ron Jacobs coming back in the next hour with Nick Harrison and Richard Gage, AIA of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry to discuss the oral arguments that Nick presented earlier today to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Don't miss that. Stick around. This is Truth Jihad Radio, truthjihad.com.